I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? <laughs> Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged, Theology Unplugged um, podcast. That's right. Radio. Yes. We are coming to you from the Credo House, Edmond, Oklahoma. Uh, some of you have stopped by recently. Good to see y'all. Yeah, we had someone from New Hampshire, I believe, was it? I don't Last know. week? Yeah. I don't know. So, I, I just said that because I figured a lot of people would stop by and it was a yeah. thing to say. We had some people from Texas on Saturday. Yeah. 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 Well, it's the tourist attraction here in Oklahoma. It is. It's it only is. a few places to come here, but this is one of them. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and we give back. We'll give you a Luther latte if you come and say you, you listen to Theology Unplugged and uh, that you've come on a pilgrimage to yeah, the Credo yeah. House. We You'll will have to pay for it, but we'll give it to you. <laughs> That's right. We will give it to you for a cost. <laughs> Do people get their sins forgiven for making a pilgrimage to the Credo House? Uh, well, we can work something out. <laughs> you know, there's some indulgences that can yeah. be acquired yeah. through this, and I think the Lord well, the, the biblical answer will be yes because we'll share the gospel with them. Uh, yeah, yep. Theology so. unplugged. Um, welcome for those of you who are listening to us on iTunes or on the blog. Yeah. Hey, Michael. First time someone's ever listened to Theology Unplugged. What are they listening to? Um, well, they're listening to theology. And it's unplugged. Nice. <laughs> nice. That is profound. Uh, no, that's a good question. Why are we unplugged? I, I think the best thing that we could say is that we try to be open and honest, a little bit less formal. Normally, when we come in here, we're, it's not that, uh, we, we, we like to say that our lives are a preparation for these things and that uh, our studies throughout the years are a preparation for these things. But sometimes we'll just sit in here and discover the topic while we're after we sit down. Yeah. Whenever I tell you guys what we're talking on. That's right. But, you know, we've been in a series, Invitation to Calvinism, so everybody knows pretty much what we're going to be covering here Yeah, the, the surprise is out. But, and a lot of it is kind of this idea of, of many of the people listening may uh, really enjoy the um, challenging thought about our great God, uh, but feel like they don't have a, a, a close connection of maybe people that they can have discussions like this with and so it's kind of a chance to in in my mind to picture that we're sitting at a coffee shop with someone else and the three of us are sitting at the table with them and it's a way to really just have an informal dialogue about really important things yeah sure kind of a fly on the wall yeah it yeah. started whenever i was at stonebriar community church gosh it was probably eight years ago now whenever me and Rome Dyke. Uh, some of you may remember Rome. Who was in the Credo House <clears throat> last week as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was great Great to have you here, Rome. Uh, and whenever we were just sitting in the office talking about something, it was an after-class discussion after some theology class that we did, and I said, you know what, this is the type of stuff that I would love to listen to and sit on as a fly on the wall mm. sometime. Um, if, if somebody else was doing it, maybe, but... You know, that we thought we'd provide it for other people as well, so it began then. So here we are. Uh, theology is not just for the clergy. That's right. Theology is for the clergy. Not like I we're clergy as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's on the intro to every Theology Unplugged is, is this idea that we don't want people to just say, uh, you know, we, we've heard people say, I'd, I'd rather be led than read yeah. and things like that, which yeah. uh, is just, a, it's a false dichotomy. You know, we need to embrace God yeah. passionately and knowledgeably as well. Sam's here too. Sam, have you ever heard the intro for the Theology Unplugged? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I don't know that I have. If you know, it's, it's a little dial that it, that's turning, and you're looking for something to listen to on the radio. Oh, there, yes, I have. Yes, I have. Okay. What do you think of that? That's a good. I think di- that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why Sam wanted to be on this. That's you know? right. Like, that's a good dial. I'm gonna see if we can get. I on just want to know who is it? The voice on there that's talking about eschatology. It has it's that. Reg Grant. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Dallas Seminary. Yeah, Reg is a f- friend of the ministry and yeah, uh, has yeah. influenced Michael and I at least. So. Yeah. Well, we're uh, continuing our conversation here. I'm joined with Tim and Sam, obviously, and we're continuing our conversation on an invitation to Calvinism. And we're making we're, we're making this trek through, uh, and we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe right? we That's we're great. on session ten, right? I believe so. Um, and, and we're going to be talking about irresistible grace. We're following by uh, this this uh, acronym TULIP. TULIP standing for total depravity, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, or particular redemption, as we talked about last time. And the I this time, Sam. What is the I? Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And we, we've talked a few times that. Some of these aren't really the best names. The Novo, you know, an acronym is not going to bring in the best name for each one of those. What do you think about this one? Uh, yeah, there's people who have objections to it. Uh, maybe, but it, Tulip uh, sounds better than Tulip because <laughs> somebody, some people want to call it efficacious grace mm. or effectual grace, but that's not how you spell the flower. So we're <laughs> with, with the I. But now the reason why uh, some people object uh, to this. Uh, word in much the way they reject to the word limited when we talked about the extent of the atonement is because it connotes the idea that God does violence to the human will mm. and overrides the dignity of the human soul in drawing uh, the elect to salvation. Um, if something is irresistible, um, they, they have this notion that it somehow vacates the value of our own choice in, in embracing Jesus. Mm. And of course, that's not the the point of this at all. Irresistible grace is simply designed to communicate the idea that those who were unconditionally elected, there's the you, those for whom Christ gave himself on the cross as a propitiatory sacrifice, that's the L, those very ones God will, through the Spirit, effectually draw to faith in Jesus. He will overcome whatever resistance there is in their hearts. He will um, in, a, in a very sovereign and mysterious way, work within their heart, their mind, their spirit, their affections, their wills, to um, bring them to an awareness of and a recognition of who Jesus is, so that they do come to a faith uh, in him that is saving in nature. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, it is a mystery how irresistible grace operates, um, but the point of it is that God will effectually or effectively or finally and fully draw uh, his elect for whom Christ died to faith in Jesus. <clears throat> One of the things that we've talked about here is this is relationship to Calvinism. And we've tried to show people that, that all of these have roots going going through Calvinism, yes, but, but through and deeper into church history often. Sometimes when we're talking about each one of these individual points, they were talked about by the certain church fathers, uh, St. Anselm, uh, Aquinas, and certainly Augustine. And when we talk about uh, the grace of God and the irresistible grace of God, we, we see this uh, discussed, at least, not in these terms, 
been discussed at least throughout church history. And whenever you come to, let's say, the tradition of Calvinism and the tradition of something like Lutheranism, okay, because, you know, we got the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, who you said was was very strong in many of these areas as well. And whenever you come to Lutheranism, I know that one of the things that they stress is that that uh, you can you can have people who, as we'll talk about next time, fall away from the faith but not the elect. So it's kind of an odd thing, and we'll talk about the distinction there uh, next week. But whenever they talk about uh, people being drawn towards God. Uh, the, the grace of God, there are people who are drawn into his family that are the elect and people who are drawn to him that are the non-elect mm-hmm. and the non-elect do not ultimately make it. Mm-hmm. And so the, from their standpoint, it's the tie to the elect. And whenever we talk about this, let, let's say we didn't even have an eye in the tulip. It would still be necessary because we are elect, right? I mean, there would still be some necessary mechanism through which God brings those whom he has chosen, unconditionally chosen, not based upon anything he foresees within us, any goodness he foresees within us, but some type of mechanism. And so this is just a very natural outcome of election, isn't it? Well, I would say not only election, but total depravity as well. I mean, we need to keep them all together. So if we're totally depraved and we're elect... There needs to be something to get us from being dead, and then with the atonement as well, you know, all these together, I would agree with you as well, that some sort of an irresistible draw, some sort of an irresistible Not grace seems to, to be... irresistible, because the Arminians would have the provenient, which would enliven every man, yeah, so and make them able to choose. Make it possible, exactly. Yeah, the prevenient grace of Arminianism is resistible. It's yeah. not irresistible. Of course, we haven't talked a whole lot about it, but I don't believe prevenient grace is taught in Scripture. Mm. Don't find any textual evidence for it. I think one thing that might help um, bring this this particular issue uh, into into greater clarity here is just to highlight a couple of texts of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important for people to re- realize that not not all grace is irresistible. That there is resistible grace, that every time the gospel is proclaimed universally and indiscriminately, whether you preach it or you share it with a friend or they read a book or a gospel tract, when the call or the invitation is extended to sinners to repent and believe in the gospel, that is an expression of the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that call itself is um, an expression of the unmerited favor of the Lord, and the Spirit is speaking through the gospel message. But that is not necessarily irresistible. People can resist that message, and we know that they do. Uh, I mean, perhaps the most explicit statement to that effect is in Stephen's speech in Acts 7 and in verse 51 where he says to the religious leaders, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So, yes, people resist God's grace. In fact, they can resist it all the way to their ultimate uh, demise and and damnation. But there is also an expression of God's grace that is irresistible, and I think that's what Jesus is talking about in John 6, verse 44, when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And there's that drawing, that wooing that the Father through the Spirit brings to bear on the hearts and minds of those whom he has given the Son, the elect, and he draws them effectually. 
and overcomes their resistance and somehow miraculously and graciously overcomes their hatred of uh, of God and their hatred of the gospel and brings them to saving faith in Jesus. Uh, so not all grace is irresistible. Only irresistible grace is irresistible. <laughs> well, in, in John 6, still a little bit before that, in verse 37, begins, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you add to that Romans 8.30, where Paul says that those whom he has foreknown, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, um, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. So there is a inextricable, um, unbreakable link between predestination, the calling, and justification. So obviously, those who, as you said, Tim, are totally depraved, as all of us are mm-hmm. uh, prior to the operation of God's grace, uh, are the objects of God's efficacious work. Uh, and again, it's a very mysterious, we don't know how it operates. We don't know how the Spirit works beneath even the level of our consciousness to liberate our wills, to uh, impart to us new life, to give us a taste and a and a delight in the beauty of Christ in such a way that it overcomes our prior hatred of him and our resistance to him. But the point is, God will, through the Spirit, irresistibly and efficaciously draw to faith in Jesus those for whom the Son has died. And when you say just efficaciously, <laughs> would that be, for people not familiar with that term, uh, could we say effective? Yeah, could that effectual be? or effective. Um, yeah, God ultimately wins. Yeah, so he is his wooing of the elect. Right, I, I want to talk in just a minute a little bit more about how this does not violate the freedom that we seek to retain, and and how this isn't something that uh, it, it, if it is or isn't something that's forcing us to do something against our will. But um, when we talk about the call of God. Um, and, and we say that uh, those whom he called, he also justified. And when we talk about the gospel call to, to the world, and we might even say that this is something that has gone on from the very beginning, God's call to people, God's call to people, whether it be um, uh, uh, at the time of the flood through through Noah or at the time of the giving of the law or, you know, on and on we can go. God is calling people, a general audience maybe. Right. And then there's this call that seems to be more specific, like we talked about in John chapter 6, and the call that we talked about in that, that justifies. Because it doesn't say those whom he called, if they accept that he justified, or those whom he called, some of those he justified. It's those who he called he justified, period, right? Right. And yeah. I, I don't think we can take Paul a different way, can we? No, it's... it's He's very precise there. It's all those whom he has foreknown, those are the ones whom he predestined. And those whom he predestined, and he didn't lose any in the process, those are the ones whom he called. There's no leak. No. And those whom he called, um, not one more, not one less, those are the very ones whom he justified. Mm -hmm. And those whom he justified, those very ones, not one more nor less, those are the ones he glorifies. Is the calling Mm -hmm. then... What we're talking about here, when we talk about effectious grace or irresistible grace, is that the calling, or is it the mechanism behind, or or, or the the cause that is brought about by the grace? Can we equate those two things, the calling and the irresistible grace? Um, 
Well, as long as it, I mean, you made the distinction very clearly. The difference between a universal, indiscriminate invitation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're calling this program "Invitation to Calvinism." Well, this invitation to Calvinism can be resisted. Mm-hmm. A lot of, in fact, I suspect that there are a lot of people out there listening to us who are resisting us. <laughs> There's not one yet. Every uh, single one of yeah, them have. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Except uh, they're they're rather rigorously, vigorously saying no. I don't want to come to Calvinism. Uh, this is not an irresistible. We do not have the power in our words or in our argumentation to guarantee that everyone who listens to us will agree with us. Mm-hmm. God, on the other hand, does mm-hmm. when he is determined to secure a positive response in the hearts of those whom he has given to his son. He works through the call, through the message of the gospel as it is proclaimed. And how the spirit unites with the, with the truth of the gospel call is something that scripture doesn't explicitly explain. It, it's somewhat mysterious, but somehow... Through that gospel proclamation, I mean, think back, uh, you know, in First Peter two or First Peter chapter one. Is the end of chapter one? Yeah, in chapter one, beginning of chapter two, where it says that we were born again through the message that was preached. So somehow, through the truth that is made known, the Spirit operates in a mysterious way to awaken otherwise dead and resistant hearts to hear it. Not just with the ear externally, but with the heart, the mind, the soul, and embrace it and say yes to it in a way that if the Spirit had not been doing that, they never would. Okay. Call, effectious call, general call, effectious grace. Can we say that there's, uh, we, we've talked at the beginning that there's such a thing as kind of general grace as well, you know? I mean, that you resist the grace of God. There's mm-hmm. a grace that goes out to all people exactly. every mm-hmm. day, and everybody receives it every day. Well, and the rain falls on the wicked and the righteous. Exactly. You know, we see that. And, and so it's not necessarily affectious towards their salvation, but it may be still calling them to God. I mean, even the sun shining upon us is calling us to a recognition of God, Romans chapter 1, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, since the creation of the world, everything that has been created has been calling out his name and and that very call itself is a gracious call it's something that god is exactly and we've referred many times to matthew 11 where jesus says come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest that is not a call issued only to the elect that is a universal indiscriminate invitation sincerely intended by jesus to every human being but it is one that can be resisted and, again, we know that it is. People die in unbelief who've heard that call repeatedly throughout their lives. Yeah. But behind and beneath that external universal invitation, we believe the Spirit is working uniquely in the hearts of those whom the Father has given to the Son. So, when we say irresistible grace, it's not talking about all the grace of God being irresistible. It's just this particular grace that calls people into that the the, the justification, the salvation that that enlivens their heart, that regenerates them. Now, let me let me ask you this because this is something that I am you know you know I've wrestled with quite a bit trying to figure out prevenient grace because in some sense I feel like we believe in a little bit of prevenient grace. Now, now give us a little definition of what prevenient grace. Well, from a from to. a Arminian standpoint, if and I use this illustration quite often, if you have everybody out in the waters um, and they're and God's on the boat and He's the captain of the boat, 
everybody is born dead from an Arminian standpoint. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're floating in the water, just okay. like from a Calvinist standpoint. You know, from the uh, let's say the Pelagian standpoint, they're born drowning, or semi-Pelagian standpoint, they're born drowning, the hurt, and they need help. But both Arminians and Calvinists believe that we are still born spiritually. And the provenient grace from the Arminian perspective comes in and awakens everybody to where they can now respond to the grace of God, whereas beforehand they were dead and couldn't respond, just floating in the water. And the captain of the boat comes up and, you know, hey, come on, jump on the boat. They're dead. You know, you can't jump on the boat. You're already dead. And so God, in his provenient grace, helping grace, aiding grace, comes in and enlivens everybody to where that makes them savable. So, so it'd be as if everyone is floating in the water. Then instantly, he allows everyone to everybody, be, everybody to be treading water. Yeah. Uh, then, but now some recognizing they're drowning. So uh, then, some will make it to the boat. Others some will, will call out for God and say, "Throw me a life preserver." But then others will will drown again. Yeah, exactly. Prevenient yeah. grace doesn't guarantee the salvation of anybody. Now, yeah. remember, yeah. I want to clarify for our listeners. We're articulating something that we don't believe in. <laughs> I just want to be clear about that. Which is helpful, too. I mean, that's yeah, hopefully showing we're that. We're not inviting you to that. Right yeah. Now. Yeah, but because we're, we're showing that we've thought about this from both sides. Right. So. I mean, you can read John Wesley. You can read James Arminius. You can read contemporary Arminian like Roger Olson. And they will argue, And Thomas Oden has argued very, very clearly for the concept of prevenient grace. Prevenient simply means, it's a word that means that come before. And it's, a, it's the idea that God's grace comes um, before any response uh, to the gospel, and in essence, restores every human being to the state in which Adam existed before he fell. Okay, now, stop right there. Perfect segue to what I'm trying to get at. Okay. Do we not believe as Calvinists in some sort of provenient grace that can come before our salvation that prepares us? I mean, we may yes. say things that, you know, God moved in my heart early on and this happened and I met this guy and he made me think about these things. And then I met this other person and I saw his his love for God. And then two years later, you know, I reflected back upon this while I'm down, uh, you know, like maybe having a Newton experience in the bottom of a boat and, you know, about to die and. Mm-hmm. call upon God because of all those things that have come before. Yes. Does that in any way speak against what we're talking about here if we say that we have – because Augustine talked about that type of yeah. prevenient No, I, in fact, um, I'm not so sure I would use the term prevenient grace simply because it's pretty much been co-opted by the Arminians. Hmm. And if you talk about it, that immediately suggests you embrace an Arminian soteriology. But it, conceptually, you're exactly right. We do believe in this kind of prevenient grace. We would simply say, but it only comes to the elect, mm-hmm. and it is irresistible. Mm-hmm. So if that's what you mean by it, yes, we could say, you know, some, for example, someone, um, as you just described, Michael, might be exposed to the gospel when they're six years old, or, and the, but they're still in unbelief. But there is a, there, there's a little bit of a, a, a slight awakening. Uh, their curiosity is peaked, as it were. And maybe when they're 10, a, a friend takes them to a youth group meeting, and they're exposed a little bit more to the gospel. And there's, a, a, there's again, an awareness of, well, maybe there is a God. And then when they're 17, uh, they're reading um, a gospel tract, and they're actually born again. We could refer to what God was doing earlier in their life as a form of prevenient grace or preparatory grace that was 
setting the stage, so to speak, for that moment when the Spirit of God would actually renew and regenerate their hearts. And that is something we believe uh, only happens in the hearts of those whom the Father has given to the Son, the elect, and that if they are elect, it is ultimately effectual. They may resist it, you know, that at the age of six and again at the age of ten, uh, that person, although they may have been, you know, somewhat awakened to the reality of God and the gospel, may still resist it. But if they are God's elect, ultimately God will overcome in a kind and gracious way their resistance and bring them to faith. Uh, John six thirty nine says uh, Jesus is saying, "This is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing." of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So every single person that is given to Christ, none of them will be lost. And so so this is this irresistible aspect that that, that grace will not uh, fall on unfertile soil. Well, one of the things I'm trying to prevent here is uh, I know that a lot of people are thinking, gosh, my, my salvation process was one of slow and mm-hmm. God chipping away at my heart slowly. And it doesn't seem like this affectious grace suddenly came in. But it was more this cooperative effort. It felt like at least mm. you know where mm. where i was running away the he chipped away this way set up roadblocks and you know it was just this long process but whenever we're talking about effectual calling aren't we talking about the entire process of god whatever he uses yes. to bring us to him to exactly the, from the beginning to the I, end? I was in a small group last night and the guy was sharing his story and several times we commented god could have left you there for the rest of your life but he didn't he kept he kept working on you. You know, he kept chipping away. And any time along the way, he could have just walked away from you because you deserve that. Uh, because he could have just left you there and said, "Fine, you know, you've resisted me for the ten thousandth time, and you're only twenty years old now." Uh, but instead, I said, "You know, can you believe God's grace in continuing to bring you back through all these crazy situations?" Mm-hmm. But there is a time when we move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that is not gradual. That's right. There's a time when we are reborn, and that is not gradual, right? A- am I wrong? No, you're right. And, and the passage that comes to mind is 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and obviously alluding to Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there is a point at which... The, the Spirit of God simply imparts light and dispels darkness. Mm. We call it regeneration. We call it being born again. We can call it irresistible grace. Uh, however we want to define it, there comes a point at which, and it may be after 50 years, mm. uh, that a person has been fighting and resisting and saying no. You, know, you, can, you could look at somebody who maybe was born into a Christian family but they resisted the gospel. They resisted their parents' sharing of the faith. Every time they went to church, they spat in their minds, as it were, upon the sermon. And for 50, 60, 70 years, they may have said no and hardened themselves. All the while, however, God, through varieties of, of words and incidents in life and uh, whatever other means he might employ, he was somehow beneath, as it were, the level of consciousness wooing and drawing. I mean, that's interesting that Jesus talks about drawing. You know, Mm. it almost seems to be a process involved in that, a gradual uh, process. But at some point, finally, before that person leaves this life, if they are of the elect, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 will happen. God will shine the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into their hearts. And just as much as Genesis 1, when he said, let there be light, and the darkness was dispelled, so in the souls of all of God's elect, the light of the knowledge of who Jesus is, repentance, brokenness, and faith in him will come to pass. Mm -hmm. At that point, the light comes in. God's grace, the affectious grace has come into our lives. We are moving from a state of, of being called to being justified. And this is, this is where we have the regeneration that happens. Are we being, is it proper to say that, that we are going into the kingdom against our will? Um, I'd say in our flesh, yeah. I mean, that's total depravity. There's kind of a know? yes and a no to that answer, to that question. That's a tough one. Um, against my will in the sense that my will is by my nature and my choice against Jesus. I was con- conceived and brought forth in iniquity, and I was spiritually dead in my sins and trespasses. Uh, my will was determined and resistant to the things of the gospel. Um and yet somehow God worked in me so that my will would become for the gospel. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yes. But no, if by that um, you mean to say that this process does not somehow engage my will so that God can make me willing. Mm-hmm. And now, for, now, for some people, that's a contradiction in terms, to say that God makes you willing because if you're willing, you, you can't be made or forced or, co- or coerced. But the fact is, this is, and again, let's just confess it openly. This is a mystery. Mm-hmm. How the Spirit of God can sovereignly take a will, a mind, a soul that hates Jesus and the gospel, that revels in darkness, and work in and through that mind, heart, and soul in such a way that they become uh, willing, and it doesn't violate their dignity as an image bearer. That it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't turn them into robots. Doesn't I know turn, that's what people are doesn't turn them into robots. Uh, and, and if somebody says, "But wait a minute, Sam, Michael, Tim, how does God do that?" And the answer is, folks, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how He does it. I believe it happens because I believe the Bible says it does. But I don't understand the mystery of how the Spirit can take somebody who's dead in trespasses and sins and make them, cause them to come alive without somehow violating the integrity of their will. I don't know how he does that. I believe that he does Mm -hmm. because he says that our faith and our act of will is real. It's our act of will. It's not like God enters into me and, and wills on my behalf as if somehow I'm just a, you know, like a ventriloquist here and God sticks his hand up and, you know, yeah. projects yeah. his voice into mine. And, and God's just fooling himself up there with all these, all these people that he's like, oh, I love you so much. And, you know, he's making them say it every time. But we're saying that we are actually involved. In Absolutely. Yeah. And that it is us. It is not some, somebody else that has taken the place of our body, soul, spirit, unity and, and and God is God is doing that what, what God is doing is coming in and and he's reintroducing himself to dead people 
and these dead people he has to make alive before they recognize him. And in the regeneration, being made alive again, suddenly we see his beauty. And our beauty is, his beauty compels us. Not, not something that is not us, but it compels us because he has given us the ability, the eyes to see once again. And if we don't have the eyes to see, if you're dead, if you're floating in the water, dead, you don't know you're drowning, you don't know what safety is, you don't know anything. And in the regeneration process or the calling process that regenerates us and brings us back to life, I I, I love John Wesley's song or Charles Wesley's song that, that, uh, you know, he's an Arminian and he meant something different by Mm. this. But but he said, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. So you're prison mm-hmm. and, and long have you laid there you don't know anything but the prison mm-hmm. you know you don't know anything um thine eye diffused a, a quickening quick ray, ray and the dungeon <laughs> flamed with light i awoke and and rose up and followed thee. and, and, and my, we my, just butchered the hymn but you know what i mean off, my, my heart was off. free and, and i rose I, I, I woke and rose and, and followed, followed the... Now, here's what I like to say sometimes is, <laughs> if you're in a dungeon and you've known nothing else but that dungeon your entire life, and somebody comes in and light comes on, you've never seen light, uh, uh, opens the door to the dungeon and you see the outside, they've exposed you to the beauty and the depravity. Uh, with one one action, suddenly you're able to see your own situation, which you couldn't recognize before because you knew nothing else, and then you see the freedom that's come out of that with the chains falling off and the heart being free. Mm-hmm. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Um, w- would you n- make any other choice in that nature with that realization? And so in, in a sense, I, I sometimes think, well, I, I guess you could say, Theoretically, somebody may not want to come out of the dungeon, theoretically, but actually nobody would. Everybody would rise, go forth, and follow him. And in a sense, God introduces himself to you, and you see the beauty for the first time. It's incredible. You've been regenerated for the first time, and and you're going to follow him, period. And it's going to be you following him. And again, for everyone who's listening to this program who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... And you know the, the 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 forgiveness of sins and the assurance of salvation and the glory of eternal bliss. Is any one of us going to say, "I don't like the way God brought me into His kingdom. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I got here uh, through an act of my will, and I think God did me violence, and I want to go back to my former state." Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to say that. Yeah, put my chains back on. Yeah, turn the lights back off. And and, and another thing too that I think that helps people because I, I, we don't want people to get the idea that. The way in which God does this in the hearts of the elect is uniform. Yeah. If you envision all of us walking in a particular direction, just walking down a pathway to hell and damnation, irresistible grace is such that for some people there is an immediate 180. <laughs> in other words, the light shines almost as it was for the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus or others, or as, for example, with Augustine. Although even Augustine's, it was a you read the confessions, it was something of a process. But God can reach down and just mysteriously and lovingly turn somebody in a 180, and they're walking back in the opposite direction. But for most people, he takes them on a slight turn. And it's a, for some people, it's a very slow, gradual U-turn that may take 30 years. Mm-hmm. And that they may make a little bit of a turn, and then they may revert back to heading in the direction of hell and damnation again. But eventually, at some point, 
God will. Um, you all can't see me. I'm using my hand to illustrate this. <laughs> I'm, I'm following. We're, we're, yeah, that. we're tracking. Just God on. eventually will bring that person and cause them to be walking in the direction of Christ and life and forgiveness. Yeah, and some might be sprinting towards hell when you see them exactly. at one time, and then hopefully, you know, then you see them later sprinting back the other some, way. Some run or, flat into a brick wall, get up and turn back and walk the other direction. Yeah. Others more, and I think probably in the majority of cases, it is a slow, gradual. Uh, process, but at some point along the way, God regenerates and gives life and imparts the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus and brings his elect into the kingdom. Amen. Well, folks, the point here, invitation to Calvinism, we're, um, we're at irresistible grace, and it's a, it's a turn that is necessary for us to make. It's something that I think is very biblically grounded. Just those words of Christ alone that we talked about are, are so substantial with regards to this. Um, and, and we just hope that the, those of you who are listening to this, that, that this is, this is not, um, a, a, we're not saying that this is the turn of the gospel for you, but it is a big turn. This is important for us. This is something that we believe that, that settles you. I had a guy come up to me last night and say, I don't know where I'd be if I wasn't a Calvinist. And what he meant by this is, I don't know where I'd be if I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God the way I do. And that's what we're calling you to, is is God's sovereignty. Recognize it in a little bit different way. Mm-hmm. Not to a man, not to a tradition, but to, to a biblical witness to the sovereignty of God. Um, next week, we're going to keep this up and talk about perseverance of the saints. That ought to be fun. So until then, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.